honor to get to share with you today. Uh, my topic is Jesus in the Passover Seder. And when I talk about that, I'm not uh, what appropriating uh, Judaism. Uh, I'm not trying to uh, convert and become a Messianic Jew. Uh, and actually, my interest in this is relatively new. A couple of years ago, I was listening to a pastor, Bill Jones. Uh, he's out of New York City, originally from Asheville, ended up in New York somehow. And his ministry is to uh, Jewish people. He himself is not Jewish. And somehow he's found himself in this Jewish ministry. Well, in one of his sermons, he went through the Passover Seder showing how it reveals Jesus. And when I listened to him, I had that response of, ah, no, no. Because if you listen to enough people say enough things, you get a lot of bad information. And so I'm assuming, okay, this is the way that you want it to be, but that's not really... When I get another perspective, they'll tell me something different. So I start listening to other uh, sermons on this, and they confirm. Well, they're Christians, so, so let's, uh, let's get some Orthodox Jews. You know, how does an Orthodox Jew... Well, they see things differently, but they describe things identically. And as a Christian, I can't not see Jesus throughout the Passover Seder. So that's what I want to share with you today. I brought a few items. I originally thought that I might uh, prepare uh, samples of foods and things. And Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing all that. Um, <laughs> but I've got a few items that we use. So we've done it for two years now in our home, going through um, a Seder and using it uh, with the family to talk about Jesus. And that's what I, I want to share with you today. So I might point to a few things. Um, but we'll get started off. So the Passover was instituted by God upon the exodus from Egypt, and it has been kept for over 3,000 years. Uh, faithful Jewish people do not omit Passover uh, practice. And so I think that's pretty uh, fantastic for something to have gone on for that long. And in fact, if you look at historical documents, it has not seen a lot of change. There are some critical things that have changed, uh, but the Seder today and the Seder in the time of Christ are very similar as they were for a thousand years before that. Now, Seder just means order. So this is an order of service. And so let's look at what that order is. Um, there are 14 steps as you go through the Passover Seder. And we'll walk through these together, uh, beginning with the uh, blessing and ending with um, the it is finished at the end. Uh, but we'll, rather than walk through the list here, let's take them uh, item by item as they come. As we go through, I do want to look at the four cups of the Seder. Uh, so throughout, there will be a point where there is a cup of the Seder, there is a, a traditional Jewish blessing. I will not be doing any Hebrew today. Uh, I've researched how to pronounce it. I have tried. Um, we will not embarrass ourselves today. Um, as we go through, I'll note where these cups occur because I do think that they're important for seeing the work of Jesus in the Passover. These are the cup of sanctification, the cup of judgment, and the cup of redemption and the cup of praise. Now, in Jewish practice, um, these can be four cups of wine. This can be four cups of diluted wine, and this can be a single cup of wine that is taken four times. Um, children often will have grape juice. Our family, we use Kadim grape juice. So at least was, it's a Jewish grape juice, so that, that counts. Um, and it's taken over a length of time with a fairly hefty meal. So there's, there's no need to abuse alcohol in the Passover Seder, although it is traditionally taken with. 
The first step is the blessing. So Passover begins at sundown. In the Jewish reckoning, days turn over at at sundown. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Rather, we think morning and evening. They think evening and morning. So when the uh, sunset has occurred, the festivities begin um, with a, a lighting of the Shabbat candles. I've got a couple of candles over here. And the woman of the house opens with a traditional prayer. And I think that it's very fitting as a Christian uh, that the woman of the house opens because it is um, a woman that brought the light of the world into the world. Uh, But that's how they begin. Uh, And then the man of the house uh, prays and lifts up the first cup. And this is the cup of sanctification. And this is to remember that God sanctified or set apart the children of Israel from all other nations in the world. And I think as Christians that we should remember that God called each one of us out of the Egypt of sin in our lives to holiness before the Lord. So after they've taken the first cup, we have the washing without blessing. And we say, why without blessing? Because there's going to be a washing with blessing later on. Uh, You can see in the picture there, uh, there's a bowl, a pitcher, uh, and they're pouring water over the man's hands. I've got a small pitcher, small bowl here. Um, there's a, a couple of, of different ways this is practiced, but the, the meaning here is to show cleanness and outer cleanness to indicate an inner cleanness. And, you know, as Christians, we get baptized. An outer washing that's supposed to represent an, an inner washing. I will find this microphone a few times as I speak because I gesture frequently. They call this living water because it has to be in motion. So it is a pouring. It can't, you can't dip into the water. It has to be poured. And what happens uh, in the language is that the Hebrew uh, means washing or cleansing. This is urchats. I can't say it right, though. Um, but in Aramaic, it means trust. So cultures that spoke both languages kind of bring together this idea of washing and trust. So there are two common practices. One is that you circle around the table and each person washes their neighbor's hands. The other practice is that the host goes around and washes everyone's hands. They'll have a cloth to dry, they'll have the pitcher, and they'll walk around washing and drying hands. Um, It's kind of an intimate uh, thing, and when I do it, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, When we do it this Passover, I will probably still be uncomfortable. It's just weird. I, I take care of myself, you take care of yourself, and you're in this close contact with somebody. Um, But it is also kind of a humility thing. Now, at the Last Supper, we see something very much like this. But in this case, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And, of course, we've all heard talk about how that is the the work of the lowest servant in the house. Uh, So this is a very humble thing and still a very intimate thing. Uh, But Jesus uh, indicated it was necessary for him to do this and said that they ought to do it for each other. Again, in a Passover service, it can be the host and it can be the participants in a circle, uh, but they wash each other. Once the washing is done, we go to the vegetable. Um, This is typically parsley or celery. I have parsley here. That's what we use. The uh, young and tender greens are representative of new life. And what is at image um, here in, in new life is um, the nation of Israel springing forth at, with the Exodus. And in the story of the Passover, 
uh, they take the hyssop greens in this case, not parsley, but greens, indicating new life, and they dip it in the blood of the lamb, and they place it on the lintel and the doorpost. So we have this um, conflation of new life in the greens and in the blood of the lamb. Uh, these things are being brought together. The parsley is dipped in salt water, so we'll have a little uh, saucer, there's no water in it, of salt water so that the participants can dip. And it represents um, the tears of uh, the bitterness of the bondage of the Israelites in Egypt. Of course, I can't help but think as a Christian of the bitterness of sin because Egypt is um, symbolic of, of the bondage to sin. And there is no sin without bitterness. There is no sin without tears. Uh, so they dip not once but twice, and then they eat the, the greens. And now we get to one of the most interesting parts. This is when I was listening to the sermon where I tuned in. I was, I was semi-tuned in. I listen to sermons while I do chores, you know. So I'm listening, and all of a sudden it had my attention. Fourth step is the dividing. So I brought with me, this is a matzotash. And it just means matzo bag, bag for the matzo, the flatbread. And this is called the unity. And that's where I had to say, uh-uh, no. And I start going through. But even Orthodox Jews, this is the unity. And inside the unity, there are three little compartments, and each compartment has a piece of matzo. So there's one compartment, there's a second compartment, and it's a piece of matzo. They're hard to get in and out because they want to drag on the bag. And there's a third compartment, and it's a piece of matzo. Uh, what is important here, and the reason we call it the unity, is that the three matzos are one. The three are one. Now, the rabbis do not agree what that means. A very common interpretation is that this represents Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob united as the patriarchs. Um, an alternate, less common interpretation is this is the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and the people united in worship. Uh, but whatever it means, they do agree that the unity is the three are one. Now, what the host will now do at every Passover celebration is they'll reach into the middle bag. Not, not the top matzo, not the bottom matzo, but the middle matzo. And they will take this middle matzo, and this is the, the dividing, trying to get crumbs everywhere, and they will break the middle matzo. Now they take the larger piece, and they have another little bag. This is an afikoman bag. Afikoman means it will come later, or it will come again. And they place the matzo into the afikoman bag, like so. They place the other half back into the unity because although this has been divided, the three are still one. It is still part of the unity. And the afikoman is then taken outside of the room and hidden, and it will again. At this point, the instruction begins. And so uh, there are four readings that children ask. I don't really focus on these, but this is the first of the children's readings. A child will ask, 
How is this night different from all other nights? And this begins the story of the Exodus. We do not have time for the story of the Exodus here. I think we all pretty well know it. Um, but again, as a Christian, I see the Exodus from Egypt and Christians exiting the bondage of sin as, as symbolic. When I do it with my family, we, we focus on that. And we come to the second cup. This is the cup of judgment, sometimes called the cup of instruction or the cup of deliverance. Um, this represents the judgments that God poured out on Egypt. And now the uh, rabbis say that we remove from the cup drops of the wine because of sympathy with the Egyptian people. Although they were suffering, uh, we feel their suffering. And so the participants will reach in, and they've got a separate plate because you don't want to use it for anything else but for this. And they will dip their finger in the wine, and they will dip it back on the plate for each of the plagues. And they'll recite out, blood, frogs, gnats, flies, all the way through to death of the firstborn. And they put these drops on the plate. And then you look at the cup. Now, you've taken 10 drops out of the cup. Does it look any lower? No. And that's the point, is even though there's sorrow through this judgment, their joy is not diminished. All right? Now, um, in the New Testament accounts of the Last Supper, the cup of judgment is omitted. Um, because at the first cup, Jesus says, Take this, divide among yourselves. I tell you from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he doesn't take it, but he does give the cup of blessing. And then as we go through the accounts, he gives the cup of sanctification, uh, the cup of redemption, uh, the cup of praise uh, to his uh, disciples, but we don't hear of the cup of judgment. And this is because that's for him. He reserves that to himself. If we remember when he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And from the cross, he said, um, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He, the, the cup of judgment was for him. Right? The cup of sanctification, redemption, and praise were for his disciples. Uh, and that's an unusual change because as we read through, we do see that omission. And then we see this talk about taking a cup and eventually taking a cup um, still on Passover. Remembering Passover begins in the evening, but ends as we transition to the next day, which he was on the cross. We have to wash again, but this time there's a blessing. Because we have just been touching the judgments. The judgments are on our hands. If we handle the food, then we could get into us and we could take the judgments in. So there's another round of washing, and now there's also a blessing because we need to make them ceremonially clean after they have handled the judgment. So they take this uh, very seriously. It's a ceremonial defilement in the middle of the Seder that has to be cleansed. And now they get to the matzah. child asks, why do we eat matzo on this night? And the host uh, tells the child that the Israelites celebrated the first Passover in haste and they didn't have uh, time for the bread to rise. Uh, but over time, leaven had come to symbolize sin. 
So they eat unleavened bread also to show that they don't want sin in their lives. And there's actually a whole uh, weeks in advance of purging leaven from the house. It's, it's a big ceremony. It's not just one night of eating matzo. Um, but what's important when you look at matzo, and this is a commercially produced matzo, but it's the same for any brand. And if you make it homemade, it turns out the same. Um, they want to make sure there is no leaven. So not only do they not put a leavening agent in, they bake it flat. But if you can see very closely, there's holes in it. It's been pierced through, so it is pierced. Um, and they put it on a hot rack, and it is um, striped, and it is unleavened. It is without sin. So the matzo is without leaven, striped, and pierced. Then they eat the bitter herbs. A child asks, why do we eat bitter herbs on this night? My children have asked that two nights running, uh, two Passovers running. They'll ask it again uh, because they don't want to eat the bitter herbs. <laughs> and uh, the host's job is to answer, well, the oppression of the Israelites was bitter and full of tears. And uh, I would add the oppression of sin is bitter and full of tears. And that's what the bitter herbs represent. And you see horseradish. And they take, and I brought with me, where did I put it? Um, extra hot horseradish. I get it as bold as you can. Because if you get a Jewish horseradish, they are lively. Um, and there's a bowl of this on the table called the meror. And uh, you take the piece of matzo and you dip it in the meror. And you don't, you don't touch it. You dip it in the meror. You get a nice big portion of it, more than you really want. <laughs> When you take this, you will cry. It is an involuntary reflex. Water begins to pour from your eyes. You can't breathe for a minute. Everyone has pained expressions. And once you do it the first time, you're surprised. The next time, you're anticipating it and just dreading, if I can just get through the maror. And so the moment that I can breathe again, because it takes a moment, I begin to talk about the consequences of sin. And I am weeping, you know. But, that, but that's the point of the maror. The point is it creates instantly this show of sorrow, even though it's really a reaction to the horseradish. Um, and, and so that's part of it. But thankfully, uh, there's, there's something good to come, so we just have to hold on. Now, after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And other accounts also clarify, this, this is the maror. He is dipping into the maror. And when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So he had just taken the bitter herbs. Judas tasted the bitterness of sin in the maror and was sent away to complete his betrayal. He never got to enjoy the sweetness of the heroset, which is about to come. Uh, the satisfaction of the Paschal Lamb or the joy of the cup of redemption to follow, that was for the other 11, not for him. But the sweetness of the heroset. Uh, so if you get through the maror, the reward is the heroset. This is a dish of apples, nuts, wine, honey, and cinnamon. Uh, that is much prettier than the version that I make, but I make something very much like this, and it is delicious. I, I now have to make an overabundance of it because we enjoy it the rest of the week. Um, 
And so it, it's interesting, too, as you, as you dip into it, how uh, the momentary discomfort of the roar is gone when you taste the sweetness of the haroset. Um, haroset, it's uh, mortar. And it's supposed to symbolize the, the bricks and mortar as the, the children were, were building in Egypt. And a question will come up, well, then why is it so sweet if it represents the bricks and the mortar? And the, the um, rabbi will say, well, it's because once we knew deliverance was com coming, even our work became sweet and pleasant. Uh, and I'll tell our family, you know, as we go through many hardships in life, if we walk with the Lord, even the hardships have sweetness. Now... The ninth step is the sandwich. <clears throat> so ever since 70 AD, there have been no Passover lambs sacrificed. That has stopped. For 2,000 years, there has been no lamb at the table. Prior to that, there was always lamb. That was the point, that you're roasting a lamb. Um, this is, is where that would have appeared instead um, on the Passover plate. And, and by the way, I did bring, this is a traditional... Um, Seder plate, where they put the different elements in different spots. On the plate will appear a shank bone, roasted shank bone of a lamb, and a roasted egg. Uh, for those that don't like to try to roast eggs, a lot of people will put a boiled egg. Um, the uh, shank bone is to represent the lamb that they, they don't have now that the temple is gone. And the roasted egg is representative of the temple itself, the hard outer shell the layers in toward the Holy of Holies and roasted as it was destroyed by fire. Of course, now we boil. Um, they will slice the egg, dip it in the salt water, and eat it, representing the tears for the destruction of the temple. So in a modern uh, Passover, there is no Passover lamb. They don't have one. As a Christian, I'd say they rejected one. That's why they don't have one. Um, but prior to that, we have the Paschal Lamb. Jesus obviously would have had lamb at his uh, Passover supper. And this is to be a yearling male in its, uh, in its prime. And on the 10th of Nisan, and I've tried to pronounce it many different ways. It just comes out as a Japanese car or whatever uh, car company it is. Uh, on the 10th of Nisan, it's taken into the home, and for three days, the lamb will be kept in the home. It's almost a pet. The kids get to play with the lamb. It's in your home. And then on the 14th, it's taken to the priests. And the priests have to determine if it's fit for Passover that it doesn't have blemish. And then uh, on the 15th, it is sacrificed across Israel. So you've had this thing in your home for several days, treating it like a family pet, and then have to sacrifice it. Um, it's, it's meant to be a little bit emotional. It's meant to be an uncomfortable situation. Now, the Lamb of God was a young man in his prime on the 10th of Nisan. who was taken into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. For three days, Jesus dwelt among the people, teaching and being received warmly. Um, he was taken to the priests, attempting to find fault, and they could find no fault. Uh, they had um, false witnesses testify against him, but they could find no fault in their trial. And then on the 15th of Nisan, he was sacrificed at the insistence of the Jewish people. The paschal lamb uh, was skinned and then hung upright over a fire using a crossbeam. So this is the way that you roast a lamb. And as a Christian, I can't not see a cross when I see a roasting lamb. Um, now this lamb has been butterflied. This is a, a modern roasting. They're going to just eat him for supper. Um, but if you did it per what 
Exodus tells you to do, what the Levitical Code tells you to do, uh, this lamb would be whole. You can't cut him open. You can't remove the head. You can't break any limbs. He's just whole. And so how do you know when your lamb is done if you're roasting? You take a rod, and you thrust it into the side of the lamb, and you look at the color of the juices that flow out. And if you've ever had a really good steak, you see that juice come out. It is not blood, and it is not water. It's a reddish, pinkish water, and it's good. When you thrust into the lamb, you hope to see this blood water looking thing come out. Uh, the bones are not broken, and they had to take him down at sunset. Again, the lamb of God was stripped naked, hung across. They tested him by thrusting a spear into his side. The blood and water flowed out. His bones were not broken. He was taken down at sunset. So for someone who had never roasted a lamb, it was a revelation to see what that looked like versus what this looks like. Um, the man of the house would take a bunch of hyssop greens and dip it into a basin of the lamb's blood, and he would put the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts. Uh, this would create a pattern of blood dripping down the sides of the doorposts and from the lintel onto the ground. Um, many people compare that to four positions on the cross, um, maybe. In, in the King James, it translates the word as striking the lintel and the doorposts. And if you think about it that way, uh, it depicts a downward strike and a strike and a strike, and it paints a cross. I say put because that's the better translation of the word. So I, I, don't, uh, I, show, I, I found images of striking, and it's a blatant cross. And I'm, I'm not trying to ever misrepresent what might be here. Um, but even if the, an image of a cross isn't there, certainly the um, salvific symbology is of the blood of the Lamb. Uh, but I found it interesting when I saw how that would look. Now, the first Passover meal was eaten in haste, and the rabbis say the way that they did this is they took the matzo and they made a sandwich uh, with the lamb and, and the different items. Uh, you break the matzo in half, and you have the lamb. Bitter herbs, but they commonly will use romaine lettuce. That's what we use. It's much more pleasant. Um, you do put the meror, but just a little bit, and heroset. This is wonderful. I would eat this just to eat this. This is delicious. But, of course, now I'm eating it with lamb because I'm a Christian, and I have a Passover lamb. Uh, without that, you have a piece of lettuce and some sauces, so I don't know how that tastes. Then we get into the fellowship meal. Uh, the child asks, why do we recline at the table tonight? And the host says, in ancient times, a person who reclined at a meal was a free person while slaves and servants stood. So in the first Passover, they're in haste. In modern Passovers, it is slow. This thing pauses right here. This is the intermission in the ceremony. Uh, this can go on for an hour or hours uh, where they bring out whatever sorts of uh, food uh, that they enjoy. Common menu items uh, include uh, gefilte fish, which I've got a jar of here. It's uh, fish dumplings, uh, matzo ball soup, uh, roast chicken or brisket, uh, potato kugel, which is like a uh, potato casserole, and zimmies, if I'm saying that right, it's a stew of carrots and prunes. Uh, so these are traditional items that they'll eat. Um, but anything that's kosher for Passover, they're going to have all sorts of food items. It's a feast, and they fellowship, and it takes time. Now, when the meal is over, it's time to get back to the ceremony and close out the Passover. This uh, resumes with the search for the afikoman. Uh, the children are sent from the room to go find it, go find it. Where is the afikoman? 
And so they'll search around, and this is great fun for them because they get a prize if they find the Afikoman. And they'll find it, they'll run back in, they'll say, I have it, I have it. And they don't just give it back. That's not how it works. They've got the Afikoman, and it must be ransomed for money, traditionally for silver. And so, uh, now of course, I don't want to get my kids uh, fussing and fighting at Passover dinner. So when they go find it, they each get a, a little silver coin. These are little half dollars. But I ransom it for the silver. But traditional Jewish homes will only give it to the one that finds it, but it is to be paid in silver. And they now have the Afikoman back. Now, at the Last Supper, Jesus explained the Afikoman to his disciples, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at a modern, orthodox Jewish table, they will take the Afikoman and begin to break it, and they will take it around the table, and they all take the piece of bread. They don't know why. Um, but that's what they will do. This is what Jesus says is the reason why. And, of course, I'm sure we've all caught on that the, the unity is not uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? The unity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. From the Son, the middle matzo part is taken, wrapped in cloth, as the divine nature of the Son was concealed in flesh, while part remains in the unity, for the Son can never be separated from the Father and the Spirit. Like the matzo, Jesus is without the leaven of sin. He is striped and pierced for us. Jesus is the bread of heaven who came down to the house of bread, Bethlehem, to become the bread of life for us. Like the matzo, Jesus was sold for pieces of silver, hidden away, only to be revealed later. And then they take the third cup, the cup of redemption. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so the cup is the cup of redemption. Now it's time for Jewish Thanksgiving. The twelfth step is gratitude. Uh, the participants uh, go around and say what they're thankful for, and uh, they, they are representing the thankfulness of the children of Israel being freed from slavery. And, of course, I tell my family, Christians should be thankful for our deliverance from the slavery of sin and oppression of death. So we have a little mini Thanksgiving. And then comes praise. And the cup of praise comes out. Uh, participants sing songs of praise. In the time of Jesus, uh, these would have been from the Psalter. Modern families uh, sing other traditional songs. I have learned and forgotten and learned again uh, Dayenu, and I will not be singing that today. Uh, but there are some traditional songs they sing outside of the Psalter. Uh, Matthew records, when they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So that we're, we're walking through a Passover Seder as we read in the New Testament. Now, the 14th and final step is the Nertza. I'm hoping I'm saying that right, uh, which means it is finished. Uh, Nertza means accepted or satisfied, and it refers to something that was wanted being given or something that was owed being paid. Um, Jesus, from the cross, closed the Passover Seder with his dying words. Um, it is finished, literally, uh, I'll say this wrong, to telestai, 
which also means paid in full. He says to telestai, but it's the same as nertza. It's, it's the end of the Passover. It is paid. Um, what this originally represented was the um, blood of the Paschal lamb satisfying the, uh, the demand for the death of the firstborn. Don't take the firstborn. It is paid. Um, obviously, in Christ, we have an eternal Paschal lamb uh, who is able to pay in full, uh, not just this year's payment, but permanent payment. In Jewish homes, they always have an extra place set with a cup poured, but no one sits there. There's just an empty seat. This is the cup of Elijah, and at this time in the Seder, uh, the children will be sent to the door to see if Elijah has arrived to announce the coming of the Messiah. And year after year, Elijah's place is set. Elijah never comes. Uh, The Jewish people respond, oh, well, maybe next year. Uh, Anticipating the coming of the Messiah, who will gather them to himself, they announce, next year in Jerusalem. They're awaiting a Messiah that they rejected 2,000 years ago. Um, So with my family, this is part of our tradition, Passover is an excellent time to pray for all the Jewish people who have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah um, and just pray together that they'll discover Jesus in the Passover Seder. Um, That's what I have to to share today, and I I thank you for letting me uh, speak. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at somebody who tries to be um, individually sanctified, that's not the way we're designed. Or there's someone that only trusts, well, I'm a member of a church, therefore I'm sanctified. We're not designed that way. There's always that individual element and always that communal element, and that's the way that, that God made us and made us to relate.
tell is, is there a knowledge of practices that's given him so much that, Greg, you wouldn't have a Passover lamb. You'd have a Passover barbecue. You'd have a Passover pork. And that they would always say that, you know, when he would go through the practices. And sure enough, he got that so much on his mind that when they presented the play and he got to that line, he said, where's the Passover pork? <laughs> You know, I asked Jeannie because uh, we do our Passover, then we do like an Easter meal, you know, and, and very common is, is ham, you know. And I said, it seems kind of strange, you know, it's, just, you know, it's kind of a Jewish kind of background. We're having ham, and she, she said, honey, we're not Jewish. <laughs> They don't have any. So they, they skip the, yeah. the, the natural and the blood part. Yeah, and not at all. Not at all. So there is a tremendous change in Judaism in 70 AD. Um, I would argue, this is my position, that no one's practiced biblical Judaism for almost 2,000 years. That up until the destruction of the temple, you have the continuity of biblical Judaism. During the early church period, you have a commingling. For example, you would have churches operating in and out of synagogues. There was this blending where you'd have the meeting in homes, but you'd also have them coming into the synagogue to teach, which would sometimes get them kicked out. A lot of the controversy is because they're in the synagogue doing this. So there's this, this uh, blend for uh, 40 years uh, of the two sitting on top of each other. And then in 70 AD, um, it, that's over temple's destroyed and biblical Judaism is done, either you have transitioned to Christianity or you're in now the rabbinic Judaism that we see today, the Talmudic Judaism. They completely restructure the faith, completely restructure the traditions uh, such that a modern Jewish person is somewhat interested in the, in the Tanakh, the uh, Jewish Old Testament, but they're very interested in the Talmud, which is the rabbinical writings that come much later. And so um, they don't see any conflict in a Passover that doesn't look like our Bible because they've redone it over time. They do, and in fact, most non-religious secular Jews do. The same way non-religious, secular Westerners have Christmas. Now, I don't know that you would call a Christmas celebration in a non-believing home a true celebration of Christmas, but they grew up with the tradition, and they think about it as going home, seeing mom, eating the traditional food. So it is, it is very widespread. Not that every Jewish person or family does it, but that it is extremely widespread and through all the major traditions. And there are differences uh, in researching this um, in, in the different traditions. Uh, some of the food items are a little different. Some of the, There are a couple of different orders. This is the predominant order that I presented here. There's a few tweaks in certain traditions. Do they actually do it in, in their uh, synagogues now? Or no. It's at home. And this is one of those odd um, situations is that it is... Um, if you go all out, the host, the man of the house, dresses in priestly linens. There's a kittle, 
that they'll wear, which is a priest's garment, and they take the role of priest for that one night in the home, uh, which is an unusual thing because they have very clear distinctions by class. You're, you're not a Levitical priest. What are you doing? But for one night, you dress as one, and you conduct it in the home. Messianic Jews love the Passover Seder. And in fact, YouTube, because that's a lot of my research is on YouTube, YouTube is full of Messianic Jews doing the Seder and talking about many of the things we talked about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other questions? Great job, Thank you. Thank you.